Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Hi, good evening. This is Clarence Boone, um, producer of Bring It On. And before we start our show for this evening, just want to let you know that this is a pre-recording from January 7th. Our guests were Liz Watson and Eric Love. And the topic was the insurrection at the Capitol building. Uh, what follows is their observation the day after those incidents occurred. We feel it's relevant to replay this uh, just as sort of a backdrop to what's transpiring now with the second impeachment of our, for- of our former president, Donald Trump. Of course, much has transpired since then. We'll keep you all apprised. But for right now, here is that recorded interview from January 7 with Liz Watson and Eric Love. Thanks for listening to Bring It On. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. With the presidential election finally behind us and the inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris now in our rearview mirror, Political theorists are examining the strategies that led to the successful election campaigns for President-elect Biden and the successful campaigns of Georgia Democratic challengers, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, which shifted power in the Senate. Many will point to the divisiveness of Donald Trump, which led to an energized Democratic base that had record turnout and early mail-in voting. Some will point to the political might of Black voters, especially women, However, what cannot be underestimated was the mobilization of a vast number of newly registered voters that exercise their constitutional right to vote for the candidate of their choice. And while urban voter registration initiatives were in high gear, we should not forget the impact of voters in the rural communities who turned out in large numbers in 2020 for the Democratic ticket. Scores of these voters were absent in 2016 when former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Senator Tim Kaine comprised the Democratic ticket. Here to help us examine these elections and their impact on various communities, especially rural, our longtime Bring It On contributor, Eric Love, Director of Staff Diversity and Inclusion for the University of Notre Dame, and Elizabeth Liz Watson, Executive Director of the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. She was the Democratic nominee for the 2018 U.S. House of Representatives election in Indiana's 9th Congressional District currently represented by (laughs) Trey Hollingsworth. Eric and Liz, welcome to Bring It On. Good to be here, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And uh, what a difference a few weeks makes. Um, A lot of (laughs) drama back on January the 6th, and wow, um, what a difference a couple weeks makes. Mm -hmm. Um, As as we mentioned earlier, um, you both both are busy now in different capacities. Eric, you're a longtime staffer at IU, uh, heading up diversity initiatives and doing a phenomenal job. And now you're with the University of Notre Dame. Uh, did they win their football game? By, I can't remember. Uh, we did not. Uh, okay. Well, okay. And, but, but anyway, we'll go on. <laughs> we, and, we, were, uh, we were in the Rose Bowl, but we lost. But we got okay, there. <laughs> uh, okay. We, we were supposed to get there, but that, that, that's another story. Uh, Liz, you are now director, executive director of the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. Please, please explain a little bit about that organization and uh, what your mission is. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I run the Progressive Caucus Action Fund, which is a nonprofit uh, in Washington, D.C. that works to advance people-centered policy that builds racial, economic, and gender justice. Um, we fight for progressive policy changes that protect our communities and make a real difference in people's lives. Uh, for example, we were extremely involved in the fight to get COVID relief packages and economic relief uh, passed for folks who were without their jobs, who are facing eviction, who are struggling across the country, and to make sure that that relief uh, got into the communities that need it most, knowing that Black and Brown communities have been by far the hardest hit um, by the pandemic. Uh, we do a lot of work making sure that the voices of real people get heard in Washington. Um, we know there's, you know, K Street lobbyists that are making sure that big corporations uh, have their say in policymaking. And we think that uh, people who are organizing for change in their communities ought to have a say too. And we work to help make that happen. That's awesome. And, and I'm curious, uh, with now President Biden at the helm, uh, we're, we're assuming there'd be a big infusion of support for these initiatives that have struggled against a Republican Senate and, uh, and just had the House to help champion some of what they're doing. Do you, do you think you'll see great gains this year in 2021? I do. And I think, you know, just thinking back to the, you know, fateful events of January 6th, you know, uh, we, we ended the day with these terrible white supremacist angry mob storming the Capitol, right? But, but how did the, the day start? You know, it started with black women organizing in Georgia for, you know, uh, these two democratic seats. And it's pretty interesting to see what happened there, right? Because uh, you saw a black minister and you saw a, a, a Jew get elected um, in place of, you know, folks who've two senators who really perpetuated, you know, um, racist policies in Congress. So, you know, that is really important because now we have the Democratic House, the Democratic Senate and, 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 and the uh, presidency. And so when you think about what that's going to mean, it doesn't mean everything, right? Because those are narrow majorities, um, the narrowest of majority in the Senate. Um, but it means that there is real possibility and it's going to take a lot of folks on the outside pushing you know, to right. make change, right. but it's a very big deal, very big deal. Well, on that note, uh, the sort of the focus of this program is how individuals like Warnock and Ossoff got to the seats that they're currently occupying and and the uh, yeoman's efforts. Um, of course, you know, Stacey Abrams for president in eight more years or whatever, because wow, she's a, superhero. she's a superhero, I'm telling you. And it, it's interesting how she really, was um, uh, she missed out on an opportunity to be governor because of some shenanigans. But then Kemp uh, inherited all the wrath of Trump. It, it's, you know, it, it, to what avail? Uh, so anyway, I think she could write her ticket anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the best is yet to come for her. But speaking of her recruitment efforts, um, let's start off by saying, how do you flip a red state? First of all, for Biden, and then you come back and get two senators elected. What, what's, what do you think happened there? Either one of you. Yeah, I'll, I'll start, but I, Liz may have, have even more information. I think she's in the trenches a little bit more than I am. Uh, but what I am just so impressed, and Stacey Abrams is a hero of mine. She was cheated out of an election. We know that the, the ultimately the, the governor, the guy who won governor, was the secretary of state. Um, they purged probably hundreds of thousands of, of voters which led to Stacey Abrams being defeated. Instead of retreating, being defeated, 
she uh, she got cheated out of an election and she took back a state and the U.S. Senate. Like she just hit the ground running, um, made sure people registered to vote, make sure they voted, tried to um, do, you know, grassroots efforts of getting people to vote. And first she turned the state uh, blue for the president, the presidential election, and then again for the two senators. And so uh, if I that's just an amazing story of resilience and um, claiming power. And even though she lost her personal race, she turned around and made something even uh, more significant. Um, and then in the process, of course, um, Kemp tried to side with uh, Trump and then Trump turned on him multiple times. Like, I don't know if Trump was saying, open up the states, Kemp opened up the state. Then Trump said, I can't believe you opened the state so early. You know, it's, it was the lose-lose for him. Well, I, the thought just came to me, and this is real quick. Do you think if you irritate the ranking electoral uh, director, elections director, and the attorney general in the state that you really want to win, that if there's a questionable issue, it may not go your way? Because let's face it, challenges occur in, every, in any election. I'm not saying that there's fraud in every election, but well, you really do set yourself up for not getting the benefit of the doubt. If, if there's a close call. Well, Trump isn't known for his political savvy, so. But you know, in this case, there were no close call. I mean, th this was really, um, you know, a very clearly won election in which every claim of fraud was found to be totally baseless and all That's of right. his right. millions of lawsuits, you know, thrown out. I think, you know, when you look at the, the story from Georgia, um, you know, there's Stacey Abrams, there's also Ense Ufot with the New Georgia Project, who is, you know, a very close uh, colleague of Stacey's. And there's my friend Latasha Brown, um, who runs the Black Voter Matters, Black Voters Matter Fund. You know, she, Latasha had a fleet of the blackest bus in America. It wasn't, it wasn't one bus, there were a bunch of buses. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm probably telling you stuff you, you all I can see um, already know, but, you know, and drove all around Georgia and, and registering and, and making sure that Black voters got to the polls, um, you know, and Black voters turned out in record numbers, and, and that has everything to do with why we won. And so, you know, but their organizing wasn't just this year. I mean, they've been organizing for over a decade, right? And, and yeah. it's, you know, it's a long, steady process, and I think... You know, this year, what we saw in 2020, you know, in states across the country that flipped from red to blue, you know, that that there were these grassroots organizations led largely by women of color on the ground um, who, you know, just worked like crazy, you know, to get out there and connect with the community and register voters and turn out the vote. Um, and I think that, you know, the special sauce is is hard work, right? And the special sauce is sustained investment. And it's not just investment in a particular political party, but it's investment in community-based local grassroots organizations and in issue organizing and in learning from people what makes a difference in their lives and getting out there day in and day out and talking about those issues and delivering for, for people. So, you know, that's, I know, you know, William and I have talked about this, but you know, there's just such a need to really think about how we have more sustained infrastructure. And being a Hoosier, you know, I see that as a real need in Indiana, um, you know, to have much more year in, year out, month in, month out infrastructure, not infrastructure that flexes up around a candidate or a particular election, right? Um, but a way for just, you know, regular folks to, to make their voices heard and engage in democracy um, every single day. And that's, that's, I think, the lesson of Georgia. They did that right. And, they, and a bunch of, you know, other community organizations did that right across the country. And I think that has everything to do with the wins. I wonder if Republicans are thinking, uh, darn, we should have let her win. 
because <laughs> she did something that they that they've been very good at. She played the long game. Yeah. Um, sure. her, her voter organizing efforts go back beyond 10 years and there's no telling how many of the other women who are active in those efforts, how far back they go. But uh, Liz, I wanted to ask you um, your opinion about, about Brian Kemp. This guy stole the election from uh, Stacey Abrams as, as Secretary of State. You know, he was uh, the, the fox guarding the hen house. Mm -hmm. But then he turns around and he stands up to Trump and and argues for the legitimacy of Georgia elections. That I'm having a hard time wrapping my, my, my arms around that. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think there are a lot of people right now who are, you know, kind of realizing that um, continuing to stay in Trump's corner is not going to age well. Right. And so, um, <laughs> I mean, it's true. You know, yeah, I, I love the way you put that. It's just not going to age well. You know, the social secretary. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. The social secretary and, um, uh, um, Melania Trump's, I guess, number one staff, you know, all the people who are resigning. I mean, you're seeing actually Elaine Chow, uh, who Department of Transportation head, who is Mitch McConnell's wife, you know, right. just stepped down. She did? I, mm -hmm. I didn't hear that. Mm -hmm. I just saw that. Um, so, you know, we're seeing people realizing, like, you know, if we don't stand up to this guy, um, you know, our, <laughs> our, our fortunes, right? Uh, it, it's not going to go so well for us. So, he did, you know, he did the right thing, um, and and that's important. Uh, and we need, frankly, a lot more, a lot more Republicans to start doing the right thing because, you know, right now we have, if you look, you know, at uh, well, we'll we'll get to the events of January six, but we certainly have a lot of uh, Democrats who are saying, you know, we can't have this guy in office uh, for two more weeks, um, or sorry, uh, you know, we until until inauguration. Um, but we're not hearing that from Republicans, and really, this is this is a time to put country over party, you know. Right. You know, in my mind, these eleventh-hour resignations—they—they uh, they just they're just meaningless. Um, these people are trying to jump ship with the rats, but I mean, I think even the rats don't want them. I think they should—they—they uh, they have made that bed. They should go ahead and be held accountable and and go down with Donald Trump. Uh, Lindsey Graham gave a pathetic speech on the Senate on the Senate floor last night. Count me out. Enough is enough. Seriously. Mm. Now, after we've had an insurrection at, at the Capitol building, now you want out? It's, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think back when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, had had suddenly passed away, and, and we and we knew, you know, you know, let's face it, she was trying her best to hold in there until after the election. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful because she was in failing health, but that woman really did not want to see the shift of power in the Supreme Court the way it did. And she even requested, wait till after the election, the incoming president should have the right to select their person of choice and not even a consideration of that. But then they go back to, to the video archives. <laughs> All of these senators were saying, you know, it's just not right. He's a lame duck. We ought to do this. That. And I'm thinking, well, what the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy. And so I see a lot of uh, what's just recently transpired as sort of, um, you know, reaping what one has sown and yeah. in the worst possible yeah. way. It's embarrassing. They will be tarnished forever. And those senators that have called for the insurrection were supportive of overturning the will of the people when it came to um, not recognizing 
the electors uh, vote, uh, they, they will be tarnished for a long, long time. If I can, I want to go back to the Georgia situation. Now, you mentioned the good efforts of, of these volunteers who mobilized and inspired even in, in the midst of pain, because Stacy was in great pain that night and you know she was within striking distance. But then days before we knew that Kemp had just thrown out all these eligible voters. Um, but to right the ship, sort of say, took a lot of resources. Yeah, that's right. They said over almost a billion, if not more than a billion dollars was spent in Georgia. A lot of states don't have that type of mm -hmm. capital to make changes in government. Um, mm -hmm. but, 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 is, but is Georgia the outlier or can you see change around the country just with good hard work, mobilization, roll up your sleeves, that type of effort? Yeah, I mean, the fact is it does take, you know, it, it, elections are, you know, the amount of money that's poured into elections these days is crazy. And I think we should have public financing of elections, you know, um, but it does take investment in community organizations to be able to mobilize and get out the vote and connect, you know, connect with voters. And so when we think about the way that, um, people invest, you know, it tends to be, there's a lot of investment that get made in candidates and that kind of thing, right? But but there's not so much investment that gets made in community organizations that are there day in and day out, um, connecting, you know, Latasha Brown would say, you know, pe people call Latasha and they say, thank you for saving our democracy. And she says, you know, <laughs> and, you know, thank you for doing this for, and she says, you know, I didn't do it for you. I, I, I did it for our community and I did it for black people right here in Georgia, you know, and that's, that's who I'm fighting for. Um, and, and so I think we need to make, uh, we, you know, that there needs to be more of an understanding of the importance of those grassroots organizations and of sustaining them because they can't, they can't do it on, you know, um, fairy dust. They need real money, right? To right. Do, That's right. Do the work they do. She did something that I thought was just, you know, and this is just one of, I mean, she's a really amazing person, but, you know, when you saw these, like, if you think about Charlottesville or the other, you know, all the white supremacists coming to cap state capitals all over the country or what happened on January 6th at the United States Capitol, you know, brandishing their guns and whatever, you know, um, to try to, to, to try to um, fraudulently overturn the will of the voters. You know, um, Latasha was out there providing food, uh, you know, a, a, and lunch to folks who, who might need it. And they did some wonderful, you know, uh, toy drives around Christmas um, and, and, you know, and really inspiring a community, right? Um, and doing the things that, that um, make communities resilient and come together, right? And, and which, which strategy won, you know? Right. And yeah. I, I would also, just point out Liz and all that uh, they've got the success under, um, first of all, under Trump who attacked the actual process of, of mail-in voting and early voting. He tried to disrupt the mail, um, the US post, Postal Services, mm -hmm. like every little thing he tried to do along the way and their grassroots efforts still um, prevailed. You know, like, I, I don't, I don't think we've talked about collectively, and not just us, but it hasn't been talked about much, just how many attacks on this election the Trump and, and conservatives did, to, yeah, I mean, yeah. Eric, to be honest. Let, let me add on to that. Donald Trump did everything, he tried everything that dictators try to do mm -hmm. to hold on or to seize power. He started off trying to have Joe Biden's family arrested not just Joe Biden, but his, he tried to have his family arrested. 
And then what did he do? He tried to tamper with the vote through the mail system. Uh, and even before that, calling the, the, the press the enemy of the people. And I kind of wonder where this playbook is coming from, because uh, Vladimir Putin is, you know, he's just masterful at that kind of stuff. And speaking of Vladimir Putin, um, and we're going to come back to Georgia, back domestically, but after having Donald Trump under his thumb for four years, and his stated goal is to divide us in this country and to sow chaos, he must be salivating over there right now. Because look, look at where we are. Look at what we, we've done his job for him via Donald Trump. I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. Um, and then China has to be very pleased. They have already been mocking America, referring to us uh, like Hong Kong, as we crit critique them when they put down the, the uprising, well, not the uprising, but the peaceful protests in Hong Kong. And then also there's North Korea. Um, I mean, all of these, um, these leaders who lead by threat and coercion are just dancing. And somehow they have strung this guy along, maybe with the promise of real estate or money um, to do their bidding. And, and there needs to be an investigation on that because he's, he, just, he just took $200 million from donors after the election saying, donate for us to fight the outcome of the election. And that was a misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just, um, I don't know. Uh, and, then, and then to the list you began to, to put together, William, let's not forget that he said Kamala Harris was not American. Right, right. Here we go again, right? Which is, um, you know, right back to the horrible things I won't repeat that were said about President Obama, you know? Uh, one thing, going back to Atlanta real quickly, there was now, uh, lest we forget, there was the greatest tagline ever. You put me in office, I'll make sure you get the $2,000 stimulus check. Now, that's an incentive. <laughs> if I, I mean, no one's called him out on that, but I'm thinking, well, you really can't make these type of promises. But then again, the reality is you, you, get a, you, gain, you, you help us gain control of the Senate. We'll pass that $2,000 stimulus package and uh, we'll help you out. Now, granted, it all goes to a worthy cause. But then you also can't under, underestimate the power of a major metropolitan mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who, along with Stacey Adams and Latasha Brown, mobilized uh, not only the Atlanta metropolitan area, but other outlying major democratic strongholds in Atlanta. I mean, this was a statewide effort to get this done. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the things, I don't know if you, if you all have seen this on Twitter and Facebook, but you know, um, I will say there's a lot like, there's a lot of white people right now going like, oh my gosh, you know, a black woman, right? Like we have to just, just being real. I, I think sometimes that's a little, there's a little cheesiness of white people who don't invest and then um, are very thankful on the back end, right? That we have to, you know, anyway. And, and, um, but, uh, you know, and, and people saying, well, you know, where's the Stacey Abrams in our state? And, and the thing is, there are. Right. I mean, there are in every state, you know, incredible organizers of color who could who could be invested in, right, to be able to to do this work. But the investments, you know, aren't there. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I saw Dana Black put something, you know, I'm sure. I don't have you had Dana on recently? Well, actually, we tried to get her to come on tonight. Oh, that would have been fun. She has her show at six o'clock on Thursday. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Tried to preempt her, but that wasn't happening. <laughs> That's it. Her show was a fun show, too. Um, you know, and, and Dana said, you know, uh, 
you know, there are there are plenty of folks to look to, you know, she being one in Indiana, right? Um, and and so I think that is a question of of how how do we start, you know, thinking about homegrown talent that you know that invest in um, you know, I can answer that. Yeah. I'm yeah. just going to put it out there. I think Stacey Abrams would be completely in her element as Democratic Party chair. Good idea. That's a good idea. Um, if you've just tuned in to bring it on, we are having a wonderful conversation with uh, uh, friends of Bring It On. Uh, we want to first introduce or or just recognize Bring It On, longtime Bring It On contributor Eric Love, who's Director of Staff Diversity and Inclusion for the University of Notre Dame. Hello, everyone. And, and Elizabeth Liz Watson. Uh, she is the Executive Director of the Progressive Caucus Action Fund. And of course, uh, she, a familiar name and a driving force in Monroe County politics and uh, has done so much uh, for the people of Monroe County. And now she's lending her talents abroad, uh, extending all the way out to DC. So, so we're glad to have them both here. We right now, DC is another country, right? Well, hopefully statehood, and, and that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. There's now talk about- I'm just joking, because you said abroad. <laughs> okay, let's uh, keep going. Let's our, keep our assistant going. producer is always uh, <laughs> dotting every I and crossing every T. Um, the, the, the purpose of this conversation tonight, we are talking about the trends and voter turnout, especially in the urban and suburban, I mean, I'm sorry, the rural and suburban area. And looking uh, online, I, I did some research and it said that overall Democrats gained the most in the suburbs, which shifted from the majority Republican status in 2016 to majority Democratic status in 2020. And this is according to Bloomberg City Lab analysis of data uh, as of November 16 for some 2,822 counties. And that makes up 90% of virtually all US counties. And that's uh, that's like a sea change, I guess. And but that didn't occur for Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine. Was it that Hillary? And honestly, was it that Hillary carried some baggage that just made her unpalatable, or did she not do her due diligence out in the rural and suburban areas, or was it the fact that Trump, being a masterful marketeer, had the tagline of lock her up, lock, lock her up, which kind of really shut down any positive momentum that she could have garnered out in these mm. uh, predominantly red areas. So what's your thought on that? So I have a, a brief response, but again, I think Liz <laughs> could probably do a, a more complete one. <laughs> but but a couple of things that I noticed about that, that election. One, uh, Hillary Clinton had been under constant attack for 30 years by Fox News and yeah. the Republican you know, machine, right? She has been under constant attack no matter what she did. It's just been nonstop anti-Hillary Clinton. Um, she, in my opinion, you know, maybe she's not the, the warmest person. She couldn't connect with everyone, but I think she arguably was the most qualified person to ever run for president. She was qualified. You don't, you know, I, I had people say, I don't like her, her voice or this or that. You don't have to like her, but she would have done a great job. She would have been a really good, solid president, and she was qualified. And the most qualified, arguably, in history was beat by the least qualified candidate to ever run. And um, point. yeah, part of that is just the, the constant ripping Hillary apart for not just for four years or two years during the campaign, but for 30 years prior. And for her to still win the popular vote 
right, and even right. to still be standing the way she was and still viable is absolutely amazing. So and a class, a up. classy individual, a classy individual, even in defeat. Uh, she did a standing eight count the night of the election. Mm -hmm. And Panetta came out and said, look, everybody, uh, they have not officially called it. We'll come back tomorrow and have a statement. And of course, you know, she had to absorb what happened because if after Hollywood Access, if that doesn't seal the deal for you, even Saturday Night Live did the skit with her dancing around saying, hey, I just won. Yeah, and we just knew it shimmy. was done. <laughs> yeah, she, she got the Hillary shimmy. <laughs> but then that, that raises a question. I'm just curious. Now, she won the popper vote. And I'm going to say this. And... You know, let, let, let's sort of take a look at this. If she had a different running mate, do you think that would have made a difference? Mm -hmm. I mean, Tim Kaine, honestly, I did not really know him before, before mm -hmm. the uh, campaign. Might have helped a little bit. Um, he wasn't the most charismatic person. I, I don't think he really added to the, I don't know if he hurt her, but he didn't help either. I well, he was more have... charismatic than Mike Pence. That is true. <laughs> But Mike Pence is, you talk about dodging a question, he's masterful at not answering your question. Except, you know, he's great at drawing flies, but he's also great at not answering your question. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Trump, I mean, we know dog whistle politics, you know, yeah. race baiting, you know, appealing to the lowest impulses in voters. You know, I mean, I think that has a lot to do um, and it, you know, uh, with, you know, that, that was his strategy. And I think, you know, we have to remember, I think there are, there are folks who voted for Obama and then, you know, and then sort of racist impulses turned on after those votes. I mean, I talked to them, um, in 2018, you know, and so I think that that explains some of the, that, that sort of set of things explains, um, you know, some of Trump's election. Um, Liz, do uh, now that Biden is going to have the support of the House and the Senate behind him, yeah. he can set his own agenda, of course. Do you think he should stack the Supreme Court? Um, I mean, I, I think you know, judicial no nominations are one of the most Im important things um, that happens. I think we should look at the lower, you know, at the, all the all the federal judiciary and that, you know, at their vacancies that this is an incredible opportunity to get decent people in there. You know, um, the conversations around court reform and, you know, do we expand the court? Um, you know, I think maybe it's time, you know, um, to, to have, you know, and there are, I, I think um, Ellie Mistel sort of does a, you know, really good writing on this. Um, Supreme Court watcher and and I think you know that the that there are good arguments for expanding the court and potentially also for ha not having them be sort of lifetime tenure you know yeah, yeah. Ten, I think Ellie Mustall uh, said they should be 10 to 12 year terms mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. but no no more lifetime appointments I, I think that uh, Democrats should do any and everything that they need to do to right the ship to steady the government, the economy, the rest of the country. And then they can worry about getting back to um, uh, normal procedures, uh, uh, as they call it, after everything is back on track. But we, we, we're so far off the rails right now that you, I don't think uh, they can go back to Congress expecting to do business the way they did before Trump came in. It's just not gonna work. 
get rid of the filibuster and uh, stack the Supreme Court, just run roughshod over all the Republican garbage to get everything back on track. I kind of flinch when I hear that. I, um, if this president's message is I'm a unifier, not a divider, mm -hmm. then to start immediately stacking the Supreme Court, especially when the Supreme Court showed great um, resolve and resilience under the pressure of Donald Trump. Basically, it was the unstated uh, agreement that, look, I'll, I'll put you up here, I'll put you on here, but when I need you, I want you to, to go my way. And that's how we are. He's transactional. And they didn't budge. They didn't flinch. And, and, and people were kind of taken aback by that because we knew that at least the latest uh, appointment you know, it was, we would have this situation with whether or not uh, there's fraud or we got to do a do-over or whatever. We, we were all fearful that she would just side with Trump and, or maybe Roberts had a conversation and said, look, this is a lifetime appointment. He'll be gone shortly, <laughs> you know. That's true, but that that's only one issue. You still right. have things like the Voting Rights Act, healthcare, right. affirmative action, abortion right. rights. And that Supreme Court as it is, well, they've already gutted the Voting Rights Act, but they're liable to, to just do damage to all of those other uh, issues that are gonna come before them again at some point. I think the court, they're, they're more moderate, right-leaning justice or, the, or justices, or they're becoming more right, more moderate-leaning. Uh, we'll see, you make a good point, but how many people would you put on the court? You're, you're saying stack the court, what? Well, Three. it has to be a minimum of four starting out. I just I just get red flags personally with that because in the next Republican president adds more people to the court. Um, I, I like the term limits because let's face it, someone's on there an appointment for life. There's some factors that no one really talks about, but at what point does your analysis ability to analyze you know, critically uh, get hindered a little bit with age. You know, I, I mean, it's, I mean, that's a reality. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe so, changing the, the may, making, they're making term limits uh, part of this disappointment. I think that may be a little bit. So listen, Eric, uh, why do you think the courts held firm through all of this? Because I think it was the right thing to do. <laughs> I think that it was, uh, I, I think they really relied on their legal backgrounds and the constitution. I think they, um, I, I think that was uh, something they were not willing to, to butt. Uh, a line that they just couldn't cross. I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, you know, my biggest fear, maybe it's not a fear, but what I've seen is that party politics, especially in my perspective, I, I'm ultra liberal, you know, uh, I think party politics supersedes the well the well being of the United States, especially from the conservative side. While Obama was trying, when he was president, he's trying to pull the country out of a recession, and you know the conservatives refused to work with him, even when he proposed their own ideas. Right. They just didn't want him to be successful, and they they would sacrifice the country to push their own agenda. And the Democrats don't play that way. They they will put the country ahead of party politics, but the conservatives do things that nobody else, you know, I, I think if Democrats acted like Republicans, we'd be at a civil war already. I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be um, controversial or uh, that's just the way I feel. I think Republicans and conservatives are willing to, to go to lengths that, that Democrats won't go to, but hopefully 
um, I think things will start to, yeah, I don't know, to balance out now, but we'll see. To, to your point, let me let me let me ask this: What role does the Grim Reaper play in all that? You know, Mitch McConnell comes out to say, "My number one goal in life is to make him a one-term president." Legislation's been sitting on his his desk, yeah, um, and you know things that can help America. But because he wants so much for him to be a one-term president, it's not touched. Yeah, well. That's a great question. I think we are in a really different scenario when it comes to that because you know we are in, not in a situation like we've been in the last Congress where Mitch McConnell gets to decide whether something comes to the floor or not. You know um, whether something at least comes to the floor and comes up for debate um, on the Senate floor is going to you know Democrats are, are going to determine that. So that that's a pretty you know <laughs> interesting change. Um, when you look at this last Congress, I mean. The truth is that the House Democrats actually passed a whole lot of stuff that they passed robust COVID relief, they passed uh, democracy reform, you know, to end voter suppression, they they raised the minimum wage to $15, they passed labor law reform, you know, um, over and over and over. And though you're right, Grim Reaper, you know, let it die in the Senate graveyard. So it's that that shouldn't happen in the same way. Uh, now, you know, it, it should the legislation should be able to go to the Senate floor if it's sent over from the House or to be initiated in the Senate. But, you know, the reality is that we've and we talked about this a minute, but we have a 50 plus one Senate, you know, there's a 50 plus one Senate majority. So um, and most things right now, you know, take 60 votes because of the filibuster. And so there's a lot riding on whether it, the Senate gets rid of the filibuster. And of course they should, but will they, right? So um, if they don't, it's I, in order to, you know, do good, do a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, there are some strategies like the budget reconciliation strategy, which is, you know, and, and that strategy allows you with a simple majority things that actually implicate the budget and can be tacked into a budget reconciliation bill um, can pass with a simple majority. And so one of the things we're doing right now is we're looking at, okay, what are those things <laughs> that we can move, like, you know, and try to get, um, try to get the Senate, you know, to potentially take up through reconciliation if the filibuster remains, you know, so I think this is going to be a, there's a lot of opportunity. It's two years um, that 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 we you know really need to see real change real fast, and it's and it's going to be hard. And you know there's going to be you know it requires a lot of you know careful thinking about Senate process and procedure and all of that nerdy stuff. I want to make a hard U-turn and go back <laughs> to the events of uh, six January. Yeah, because that's, that's still probably the number one topic in the news cycle right now, but. Uh, as you watched the events unfold at the Capitol, um, what was going through your mind? I know what I was thinking was I, I was not the least bit surprised at the conduct and the behavior of Trump or his supporters. What, what got me more than anything else was the, the lack of security, the, the chumminess between the cap some of the Capitol Police and some of the protesters. The, the way that they just casually strolled into after they broke the windows out and, uh, and breached the uh, doors, the way that they casually strolled through and uh, invaded some of the offices and started uh, uh, destroying uh, some of the property in there. And the Capitol Police just seemed to be, just, just seemed to be mingling along with them. Uh, there was a couple of scenes I saw where they just stepped aside and let them by. Now I realized they were properly 
um, they were outnumbered. Yeah. But I, I just don't understand how they could not have been prepared for this when this guy was telegraphing all of this for the past few weeks at least, possibly even months. So it, what what was going through your mind as you watched those those images on the TV? Also the selfies with the yeah the rioters and and security, you know. So you mentioned the chubbiness, the uh, escorting some people down the stairs, helping them walk. Uh, looked like a family reunion, you know, <laughs> kind of. And just stark contrast compared to peaceful demonstrators in the summer, um, you know, marching for you know, Black Lives Matter or just fairness and equity in policing and how they were treated with brutal force. Not, you know, not just, it was brutal. Like people were getting beat with batons, rubber bullets shot to their face, tear gas, all of that for peaceful protests. And, you know, they, they've proven that many of the destructive activities were done by Proud Boys and white supremacists trying to blame Black Lives Matter or to shift the narrative from the peaceful protesters. So there's so many things that was wrong, you know, with what happened on the, the 6th. Um, it's just, it's still upsetting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, Eric, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, starting with the way that the response to the, you know, the angry white mob, uh, you know, was the sort of kid glove treatment, you know, so much so they're, they're not ever supposed to, you know, be letting people up on the Capitol steps. And I walk by that area a lot. I worked in those buildings. I was a committee staffer in the house. Um, and, you know, there's, those, those are blocked, right, by the, the Capitol Police. And, you you know, and they're just, they just let people up there. And um, to see those, you know, the windows get shattered and the guns pointed, um, you know, on the on the floor, you know, of uh, the chamber where they're trying to, you know, get this job done of achieving a peaceful transfer of power as they're punching through windows. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I was texting friends, are you okay? Because I, you know, I, I certainly have a lot of, uh, you know, know a lot of folks who, who work there and, and, you know, and it was just awful to hear people, you know, sheltering in place, you know, while, um, you know, the rioters, you know, went by with their you know, whatever it was that they were doing and, you know, putting their feet up on the desk in Pelosi's office. And I mean, just um, so much, you know, the, I mean, so just incredible uh, that that happened. We have to have a top to bottom investigation of Capitol Police. Clearly there was racism in the, you know, treatment, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that this was a, a bunch of angry white people, uh, a mob of white people, you know, um, I think has everything to do with the treatment um, that they got. I saw that the um, that the uh, head of Capitol Police, I can't remember if he resigned or was fired, but I just saw mm -hmm. that on, on uh, you know, my feed. Um, but it's gonna take, you know, it's a very serious investigation why they were not prepared. Um, I, you know, I will say, I, I read there about 2000, um, you know, Capitol Police officers, that's not enough, you know, for, for something like this, right? And so, you know, they absolutely should have had um, called for backup and why they didn't and why that wasn't in place when they knew what this week was gonna be. And then of course we haven't even gotten into, you know, Donald Trump stood outside and called on people to march down to the Capitol. Um, and so this insurrection and is blood on his hands, the people who died is blood mm -hmm. on his hands. And, and, Frankly, the Republican lawmakers, you know, who uh, decided to, you know, foment this uh, over Twitter and and then go down and and um, 
not do their job of, you know, this is Josh Hawley. Yeah, Josh Hawley, right, with, with the fist, yeah. Um, just unbelievable and 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 intolerable and unacceptable. So now there's a lot of buzz about uh, this being somewhat of an inside job because uh, Congresswoman Bass was on the day and she was complaining that a lot of these people, when they made their way inside, they knew exactly where to go. There's a lot of these uh, congressional offices and spaces that are kind of tucked away, but a lot of those people found them in short order. And so they're questioning whether or not uh, some of these people had advanced knowledge, uh, collusion and complicity in, in, this, in this attack. I would say probably. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it is a maze up there to find out, find specific offices and you, it's hard unless you know exactly where you're going. I, I'm going to confess that in a couple of years of working, you know, whenever I had to go to the House floor, it was off, you know, I'd, I'd come in from my office and go under the tunnels and go underground and come up on different, half the time. I'd be on the Didn't office. know where you were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go back underground and start over. So, I mean, if they were zipping around, that is, uh, you know, that, that is pretty surprising because um, most people do not know how to navigate that place. And, you know, yeah. Well, well, I I hope uh, someone in turn to a guard and say, "Hey, where's Nancy Pelosi's office? Where are you go down the hall." I mean, I hope that did happen. Well, so Pelosi and McCarthy are, you know, they're, they're right outside um, the house, the, the, mm. um, the floor. So, you know, it would be sort of easy to get from one place to the other. Um, yeah. There was one image that just made me burst out in laughter. Uh, this one idiot takes a pick uh, a a very clear selfie of himself holding up a piece of mail that he stole from Nancy Pelosi's office. Like, why, why don't you just go down to the FBI now and turn yourself in? And, and he's just smiling ear to ear and he's just so proud of what he did. That, that's, how, that's how idiotic this whole thing uh, turned out to be. Well, Terrence, I, I'll, I'll float a, uh, this is not a conspiracy theory, but I, I not lost on me is the fact that Vladimir Putin is sitting back having the time of his life, probably raised a glass of, of uh, wine, you know, as this is all unfolding, saying, I accomplished what I wanted to in three years or three and a half years. And not lost on me either is the fact that he was uh, a part of the, uh, the, the intelligence for Russia. He was, he was a part of that, that organization. And he plays the long game as he's done with other countries. And I, I'm, not, I, I'm not crazy not to think that. Uh, they were given the date for this insurrection. His buddy was going to give the signal and direct the mob. What's to say he didn't plant individuals in there to go to these offices that are now unguarded, where secure information is kept. And they did mention that the two skips were not breached, but the offices did contain sensitive information. What if Russia had some some uh, some characters that that did breach security and got in there, and just had their way rifling through papers? I mean, there were papers strewn all over some of the floors, and you know you got to think national security. So there was also a national security representative who began to go down that path, and it kind of confirmed my thought that if there was collusion, if this was orchestrated, uh, boy, it's like a field day for how many hours? Because they didn't gain control right away. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, national security hasn't been an issue that Trump or any of his right. people are concerned with. They're, you know, Trump is concerned <laughs> with him, 
<laughs> what, what he can get out of the country and what he can do and how he can maintain power. And then his followers are just follow him. And so that they're not thinking about how their activities might, or even how refusing to acknowledge that we have a new president elect and the you know, peaceful process of um, transfer of power over the last couple of months they could have been doing. Um, and how people have said that that hurts national security in itself, and so I don't I don't think that that's um, even an issue for him. But I also think that uh, you know who's to say the Russians um, couldn't have been involved, or at least uh, I, I think that Trump delivered more than Putin ever imagined <laughs> that he could have. Um, you know when when Trump fired um, was it Comey, I think it's. Um, and then he invited the Russians like a couple of days later into the White House. And they, they couldn't believe that not only did he fire him, but then they invited him. They were like, what? He did that? Like, um, so I, I no think- No staff, no staff present. Right. And then also no uh, meeting no with- No Americans Putin, present. Yep. Meeting with Putin without staff, taking Putin's side over, you know, 11 um, you know, uh, intelligence agencies on the national stage, all of those things. I, I think Putin was just like, wow. Just un unbelievable how how much Trump helped. I, I tweeted many many times that Trump was a Russian operative. Well, well, you know, just the fact that staff that have resigned or left the White House, or, or sources from within the White House would say, if you ever want to get him riled up, just mention Russia in a negative light, because he would take you to task, and he would staunchly support them. I think there's something there where there's smoke, there's fire, and. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he's a plant, you know, and I don't know. It's you, you could run the gamut of just different conspiracy theories, but I tell you, this is so bizarre that I think years from now, if Biden lets loose some investigative units to go through, I mean, there there are secret files that have been sequestered on certain drives that ordinarily should not be there. So I think the information's there. So it's uh, it's sad. It's sad. No. But uh, go, go ahead. Well, I, I'll just add, you know, as we're thinking about the implications of what happened on January 6th, I, I know that we all are eager to, to turn the page and shut the door on this, you know, terrible era in our nation's history. But I think, and we will have, we will have a peaceful transfer of power and this, you know, this attempted, uh, you know, desperate, you know, crybaby insurrection was put down as it, as it should have been. Um, and we will have a peaceful transfer of power and Joe Biden will be our president. Um, but we we do need an invest a full investigation of what happened here. We need an investigation of all of the other times in which from the presidency, the president incited violence uh, and, and white supremacist violence, you know, um, to, you know, the commenting to the stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys, you know, using his office to incite violence against people uh, who he is, you know, supposed to be supposed to lead. Um, and so we're going to have to call for a full investigation and Congress should conduct a full investigation because we cannot have the breakdown of democratic norms like this. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, it can't go unchecked. It has to be answered. And so I think the, the calls right now uh, for his removal um, before, you know, for his removal immediately, I think are right, you know, and as the yeah. Fifth Amendment and impeachment conversations, um, because, you know, he is unfit for office. Um, right. he, he is unfit to serve. You know, I, I've been saying Joe Biden is going to have to create a secretary of investigations cabinet position just to keep up with all the investigating that needs to be done uh, more than any other president, at least in my lifetime. 
I know Eric and Clarence are a lot older than I am, so I can't speak for them. <laughs> yeah, I remember when Truman was in office. Uh, <laughs> well, I anyway. knew Washington. <laughs> you knew Washington. <laughs> um, I thought I saw Washington during the uh, the insurrection. There was someone kneeling down there with a head of whatever. But um, there was a Viking. So <laughs> yeah, there was a Viking. Yeah, or um, two, or two. Oh, weird. They all were Neanderthals, but anyway. Um, this 2020 presidential election set a participation record with more than 157 million people casting their ballots. Turnout increased in every state and in 98% of the nation's counties. Now, there's still 7.5 million Americans that are not on board the Biden train. You have to reach out to the 74 that at least as of today are not in the Biden camp. So what, what does he do? Yeah. How does he appease them? Does he just tell the truth, number one? Does he handle COVID, which we've not talked about, and just get that done? Um, although 100 million people vaccinated within 100 days, that's ooh, that's that's a stretch. But um, I think if he just does his job, maybe he can win over. And his number one goal is to unite. What do you What do you think, Eric? I see you shaking your head. I I would not want to be Joe Biden. I think he's a decent man. I think that um, he's he's really a good, decent guy. But even him, I don't know how he can do it because <clears throat> between you know Fox News and conservative radio, there's just completely two different worlds that exist. We can watch the exact same thing take place and yeah. have complete. It's like if if we're looking at a number on the floor and from your perspective it's a six, from my perspective it's a nine. I it's a nine. I know it's a nine. I'm looking at it. It's the same thing for that. Like you can't tell those 70 million people that what they're what they believe isn't true. And so they'll never accept him as a president. They'll they won't think it's a legitimate election. Um, even though evidence shows over and over and over again that it that it was. So uh, I think if anyone could do it, it's probably Joe Biden. But I think it's gonna be even tough, tough for him. Well, I think the 2020 election cycle may be the barometer to sort of see how things are going. What do you think, Liz? I think what Biden needs to do is deliver for people. And mm -hmm. I think right. he needs to, yes. I mean, Trump yes. doesn't have botched the COVID crisis anymore. I mean, you know, it's just been a travesty how many people have died. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Republicans held up uh, getting you know, survival checks to people, getting unemployment relief to people, that they didn't pass the, the paid leave um, provisions like we're in the you know uh, previous relief package. You know, Biden needs to do all that stat when he gets in there and and really deliver for people. And if folks are suffering across this country, there's right. a lot of economic devastation. And um, you know, I think he's going to take that seriously. I think he's going to take racial justice seriously. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we haven't talked that much about. Uh, the set of issues around racial equity and you know what's happened with COVID, uh, the conversation around police reform. I, I think he's I think he's dedicated, um, and so you know he's got an uphill battle with uh, the slim majority in the Senate. But you know his his the best thing he can do is notch some real wins and quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He named his DOJ team today. Mm -hmm. Garrett Marlin, uh, Merrick Garland. Garland. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a good choice. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and um, Merrick Garland said, "I am immediately going to be doing an investigation of exactly what happened today." So you know, he was in no time. So that's good. <laughs>
Well, we have about two minutes left and um, well, I, we, I feel we just scratched the surface, but I think we addressed some of the hard. Um, I'm pulling for Biden and pulling for Kamala. And um, and I, I just hope that Stacy is some planet somewhere in that cabinet somewhere to help along the way. I, and Liz, I applaud your good work uh, with your Progressive Caucus Action Fund. Um, and uh, wow, this is this is great. And Eric, as always, I thank you for your uh, insightful comments, both uh, insightful from uh, the perspectives as well as uh, you like to rouse things up sometimes. So, uh, and I, and I, I appreciate. And I, I laugh once that. in a while. So, and you laugh once in a while. Um, but I think we're with just a short time left. We just want to thank our longtime bringing on contributor Eric Love, Director of Staff Diversity and Inclusion for the University of Notre Dame, and Elizabeth Liz Watson. Executive Director of the Progressive Caucus Action Fund for joining us to examine recent elections and their impact on various communities, especially the rural communities and suburbs. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear what they are. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Also, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is yours truly. Consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontant. Original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've just listened to a pre-recorded interview with guests Liz Watson and Eric Love, and this was recorded originally on January 7th, and it covered the insurrection at the Capitol, and they offered their observations, and we were looking forward to what may transpire as a result of that. And sure enough, uh, there we are now looking at another impeachment trial in the month of February, and um, we'll bring you more as more develops. Thanks for listening tonight. Have a great evening. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.